Father and our God, we are thankful to enter your presence today and to have the privilege of uh, having you speak to us through your word. And Father, we thank you particularly this morning that because history is revealed from the beginning to the end, your word gives us hope. So we know that uh, regardless of how dark uh, things may seem to us now, uh, ultimately we know the end. And so we look forward to being in your presence. We look forward to returning with Christ as you establish your kingdom on earth. And Father, we pray for Ray as he uh, teaches us this morning, uh, that you would uh, powerfully fill him with your spirit, uh, that uh, you would teach through him. Uh, we pray that uh, you would also prepare our spirits to receive what you have for us. And then we pray, Father, that we'll take what you give us this morning uh, out uh, to the world that we have an opportunity to uh, share with, that uh, we can glorify you as we as we walk in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get into the book of Romans this morning. We're in this paragraph in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, 9:19 through 24, in the middle of that paragraph, or the, the broader paragraph, Paul is dealing with mainly the nation of Israel, and he's dealing with God choosing them, particularly for the purpose of being his representatives, you might say, to reflect him and his glory in the Old Testament period. But now in uh, this new era, after the rejection of the Messiah by the nation, the idea of God choosing another group, another uh, people, you might say, besides the nation of Israel, this would raise all kinds of issues. So he's explaining to the believers who resided in the city of Rome, and there were a lot of Jews that were not only part of the overall population, but there were a considerable number of Jews within the the church itself. In fact, the early church was composed predominantly of Jewish people, so they needed an answer. What is God doing in this age, and what happened to all of the promises, the covenants, all that God said in his Old Testament concerning the chosen people? So Paul goes back and tries to explain all that. So he's going to vindicate God's righteousness in providing righteousness to this broader audience, Jew and Gentile, on the same basis, apart from the law. This would have raised all kinds of questions in the thinking of any Jewish person, but the Gentiles needed to know as well. So very quickly, we're in the portion that deals with God sovereignly choosing Israel, Israel's choice in Old Testament time, that is the basis for God sovereignly doing whatever he wants in terms of election or choosing. And in the church era, the whole point he's making here, if God chose Israel, why can't he choose Gentiles? Because there was nothing special necessarily amongst the people that he, in fact, even created. In fact, Israel has a long history of failure in the Old Testament So now in the New Testament, God is making a different choice. So he's arguing that point. 
And he's also explaining, verses 30, chapter 9, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10, that because Israel rejected her Messiah, Israel as a nation, as a corporate entity, now is under God's discipline and is in fact rejected in terms of God's primary instrument. But that doesn't mean that Israel is done And it doesn't mean that the church has replaced Israel. In fact, that's a false doctrine that we've dealt with. But Israel has a future, and that's why they're in the land today. That's why they're a nation. I think that fulfills at least Ezekiel 37. But there's lots of other Old Testament passages that speak of the future of Israel. And Paul uses some of those passages to explain that there'll be a future restoration of the nation of Israel. And I think what we're seeing in our time frame, the beginnings of God working towards that restoration that will take place after he takes the church out. Now, I just put together lots of prophetic passages and have come, obviously, to that conclusion. So chapter 11 deals with Israel's ultimate salvation, which is even future after the church age. So these issues that are raised in a Jewish mind would be the gospel going to the Gentiles. How can that be? What's happening? What's going on here? How can the gospel go out to the Gentiles? The good news, is this gospel authentic? Is this a false doctrine? Does it not coincide with what God has already revealed concerning the covenants, concerning Israel as God's chosen people? What about all of those passages that speak of Israel at the focus of God's plan? And now you have Gentiles coming to God apart from the law, which is the focus and the center of Jewish life and thought, coming to God apart from the law, unheard of. Now, Paul has already made the point that Jews have to come as well apart from law, so he's going to kind of expand a little bit of that. And then the last and more immediate context, it speaks of God sovereignly working in Israel's past. And everyone would uh, agree that was Jewish, that God is perfectly just to harden people like Pharaoh, prime enemy of the children of God during the time of Moses. But uh, there are some other difficulties related to it concerning the justice of God and the justice relating to the Gentiles. God hardens Pharaoh then uh, that tells us that God holds man responsible. And if that's the case, that kind of leads to what he's going to deal with in the next major section. Israel is responsible for their rejection of Messiah and being set aside. So we're in one of the sections in this part in chapter 9, down the way here, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1 through 29 where we have the past sovereign election of Israel, and we're down to verses 19 to 29. That's the paragraph we find ourselves today. God sovereignly dealing with Israel and sovereignly choosing and calling Gentiles. So he's going to vindicate the sovereignty of God, verses 19 through 20. And in verse 19, he introduces, well, not introduces, but emphasizes human responsibility. So he deals with the issue of human responsibility. We saw last time, the last two times, the illustration of the potter. God is sovereign like a potter is sovereign over clay. In fact, there's a radical distinction 
between God and all of the creation, including mankind, even more radical than the physical difference between a potter and clay. We looked at that in verses 22 to 24, we left off where now this sovereignty works itself out and he shows how it's displayed, particularly in time, in history, where it works itself out in God's dealing with individuals. Two categories of individuals. Some receive mercy. All deserve justice. None deserve grace. All are subject to God's judgment. But there's also the aspect of God's mercy and and God's grace, and God exercises that towards some. So that's part of what he's dealing with in that portion there. And just a reminder, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In fact, we spent all of our session last time bringing out a consistent biblical principle that you can see all the way to Genesis chapter 3, God using man's sin to demonstrate his justice and the outpouring or the working out of that justice in the outpouring of wrath and also to show his power. His power is displayed as he exercises justice, but it's also displayed in other ways as well. So we looked at those concepts. And a fundamental principle of God enduring with much patience vessels of wrath and the little troubling word prepared for destruction. I tried to explain and I'm going to add to that as we get into the next passage in verse 23. But this idea, there's throughout history, Different eras, different time frames. In fact, the principle applies individually. It applies to groups. It applies over dispensations even, where God does a work of grace. Remember the slide I showed you? And then uh, sin, because man is sinful. That sin expresses itself and it grows like a cancer. And God, in his patience allows for that sin to continue, and part of that patience, he allows for a time frame for people to come into a saving relationship with him. So there's opportunity to experience his grace during these time frames. But he allows sin to reach its full corruption, and and then he intervenes to bring justice. And this verse kind of alludes to those concepts that we looked at last time. So the idea of preparation here, that can be not necessarily God preparing them, although ultimately God is the ultimate cause of all things, except evil. Evil is not attributed to God anywhere in Scripture because he is holy. But the verb there could be even passive. It could be reflexive in that the vessel itself prepares itself for an ultimate destruction. So we looked at that last time, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath. And this brought, as we've been looking at this underlying doctrine of election, I've been developing these principles as we've looked at the various passages. We've come up to number 10 already. And one of them, I state that God's election or God's choosing provides 
for the display of his glory through even the unbeliever. So not only by way of contrast, but in terms of his dealing with the unbeliever. So that's kind of where we left off. That brings us to verse 23, where we'll pick up. And he did so to make known. In other words, he displays wrath. This goes back to 24 in instruments of wrath or vessels of wrath. He did so to make known. In other words, he's going to reveal certain things by his outpouring of justice. Now, that's why I spent so much time last time, because it it's going to help us to understand verse 23. So when God displays wrath, when it, he displays power, when he displays patience, and when he eventually judges, and you have lots of examples in the Old Testament of that whole process, and even in the New Testament, when uh, God does all that, at least by way of contrast, he did so to make known other aspects of who he is. Now, I concluded last time by also hinting, if not more clearly stating, that I think we have some insight in this passage also why God even permitted evil in general. Why God, you know, the the, the major question, why did God permit evil in the universe? He could have created a universe without evil. Well, I think part of it is explained in that by allowing evil, God can reveal some of these aspects that we would not know about. We would not know about his wrath if there were not vessels of wrath that would experience that wrath. We would not know some aspects of his justice if there were not objects that were the recipients of the negative aspects of it. And we wouldn't even know the positive aspects of it in terms of reward as well, if there were reward, because without sin... There would be probably reward. We wouldn't appreciate it. In fact, we couldn't even appreciate the concept of mercy because there's no contrast or the concept of grace. We would not know his grace apart from the not only the contrast, but the receiving of grace, recognizing that we are subject to his justice. And because of that, if that were all that God were, were just a just and holy God, then all of us would be the recipient of that justice. So now we can appreciate his his mercy. So he did so, so to make known the riches of his mercy as well. So we've looked at last time, we saw that Paul is giving an answer. Remember, at the first part, he rebukes the questioner and shows the attitude of the questioner and that God has no obligation to give an answer. And God could have stopped right there, but Paul goes on and actually answers the question, and I consider it kind of a second part of the answer. And in that passage, in verse 22, there's some difficulties in grammar. I didn't stress them. We spent enough time there. And it raised that difficult theological issue in terms of not only hardening that we already had looked at, but also the concept of vessels prepared for destruction. And by the way, the word destruction there is not necessarily hell. It's not necessarily eternal destruction. But in fact, in the Old Testament, it is predominantly used in a temporal sense in terms of an immediate uh, catastrophic destruction or even a judgment in a more immediate sense. 
And it's more than likely that it's used in this context in the same way in in Romans chapter 9. But as we've been stressing, there are bigger purposes that God has in terms of dealing with the unbeliever. And that's just what I went over a while ago. A big purpose in terms of dealing with vessels of wrath. So he did so to make known the riches of his glory. The glory of God is are the the multitude of perfections that God has revealed. We would know nothing about God apart from God revealing himself. And when we speak or the scriptures speak of his glory, it looks at the composite of all of these attributes. When Moses asked, remember we looked at the passage in Exodus, uh, what was it, 30, 32, 33 actually? where Moses asks God to reveal his glory. God said that he that Moses couldn't stand to see the full glory. He could only see a part of him. And we only have a revelation of a part of the glory of God, and God unfolds that as we read aspects of who he is. And as he deals with humanity, we see aspects of his glory. And I've taught on, not recently, but a concept, a biblical concept of the incomprehensibility of God. And what we mean by that is God cannot be known by finite, sinful man. We cannot discover God through scientific investigation. We cannot reason our way to understand who God is. We can't use logic. We can't use philosophy. We can't use experience. There's nothing available to mankind that can give us insight into who God is. We say God is incomprehensible, but he is also knowable because he's built us to be able to have relationship with him and to know him. So God is knowable, but only to the extent that God reveals himself. So we are utterly dependent on the scriptures to understand and get a clear and accurate picture of who God is. Every other attempt is at best a distorted picture of who God is. So God is revealing and making known, and he's done this through time and through statements of scripture through interactions with believers in Old Testament and New Testament time, he has made known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. And we might even say that uh, we will never exhaust or never know God in his totality. We would need to be omniscient to be able to know every aspect of God and to know every perfection of God, and there may be perfections of God that even after our time in eternity, in the future, in heaven, we will, there'll be aspects of God that we will never exhaust because he's beyond our finiteness. So that's a concept of the incomprehensibility of God. He will reveal more in the millennial kingdom, and I think in eternity he will even reveal more. We will spend eternity discovering more and more of the riches of his glory. And in this context, in contrast to vessels of wrath, 
God reveals something of his grace, his mercy, his patience, his goodness, all of the positive aspects as he pours out mercy upon vessels of mercy. Okay, so uh, these riches, and notice, which he prepared. In other words, these vessels, the which goes back to the vessels, which he prepared beforehand for glory, to experience some of that glory, some of the some of the aspects of who God is. Now, we're created in his image. In other words, he has conveyed to us something of who he is in the initial creation, something of his glory. But he, after sin, that image has been damaged. That image has been marred. And the process of salvation is God restoring that image of God. And it's going to take a whole lifetime to even come close to completing that process that won't be completed until God instantaneously transforms us with a resurrection body when he comes for his for his body at the rapture. But notice, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, I just touched on it. In fact, we ended, I didn't make clear, but the word prepared there is a different word from the one that we saw in verse 22. Two radically different words with two different meanings. In fact, the other one is a more general word. This one is a more specific term. In fact, the two words together prepared, the the New American Standard uses two words to convey the idea of the one Greek word. The Greek word has the idea of to preparing something beforehand. In other words, it doesn't specify the time frame, but in conjunction with other passages, perhaps in eternity past, it's not clear in this passage, but at least vessels prepared for glory before the receiving of the mercy. So let's look at that a little bit. Let's compare the two terms And I'll just show you the words. To prepare can be used in a positive sense. We see it in verse 22 in that negative sense. It's used 13 times in the New Testament. can be reflexive, as I said, or it could be in a passive sense where it's not God that's preparing. So I don't think we have that doctrine that ultra-Calvinists have come up with in terms of double predestination where God as predestined, according to their doctrine, for wrath. I don't think the the scriptures teach that. That's the end product, but it's not necessarily taught in the way that I think ultra-Calvinists teach that doctrine. So I don't think it's there in the passage. Go ahead. Uh, Excuse me. How do you say that word? Which one? Oh, katartiso. Say that again, I'm sorry. Katartiso. K-A-T-A-R-T-I-Z-O would be the English transliteration. Katartizo. No problem. Actually, a lot of us use what I've been taught anyway was the Zeta there is um, it's D-Z together. Yeah, technically. But easier just, just use a Z and I think you get close to it. Yeah, we have some Greek students who have to be very careful, study well. 
I mentioned that that destruction in this context probably is temporal. And we're going to see this again as we move through the passage. I think he's talking about, in this context, Israel. And he may be alluding, in this context, to 70 AD, which would have been future from Paul's day. And obviously the believers in Rome they uh, that were Jewish, eventually they would see their nation ultimately destroyed. So that may be a part of what's in this context as well. Well... In this context, we have a different word. Now, it only occurs two times, and the other occurrence is in an interesting passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it talks about the believer. In fact, if you remember, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is kind of a central soteriological passage. In other words, giving kind of the sequence of salvation by, by grace through faith. And then it's concluded, well, first of all, we have the depravity of man, verses 1 through 3. And then in God's goodness and his grace, he provides salvation through faith and faith alone, apart from works. And then verse 10 concludes this whole experience of regeneration, the whole experience of salvation has a purpose. In other words, God has a purpose for us. That's why he hasn't taken us to be with him the moment we trusted. It it almost would seem like that would make a lot of sense. Why do we have to go through suffering? Why do we have to experience the coronavirus? Why do we have to deal with unbelieving neighbors who treat us badly, etc.? It would make more sense just uh, as soon as we receive Jesus Christ to go before him. But he has a purpose. One of the purposes is to purify us, to conform us to his image, But there's also a huge purpose in terms of our relationship to others. In the Ephesians passage, he's prepared beforehand, and that's how it's translated there as well, for good works. In other words, he wants us to have a ministry in the world, and he wants us to be a part of what he is doing in the world. That's the same word that we have in this context. And here's the Greek word there. I should have transliterated it. I I didn't. Maybe I'll do that before I post it on the the website. But notice it's a totally different word. In fact, it's not even related in terms of the root. Proetoimazo, with the same Z at the end there, has the idea of to pair something beforehand. And it implies, in this context, divine preparation, not only because of the meaning of the word, but because of the context in terms of God's choosing and God's, as we'll see in the next part of the verse, God's calling. So more than implication, we have divine preparation. Mm-hmm. Ray, what was that verse in Ephesians? 2.10, Ephesians 2.10, Ephesians Thank 2.10, you. yep. This brings us, we're, we're talking broadly in this whole section, and I've been emphasizing this underlying concept of God's election. So we have some details that are added here. I've been stressing throughout in these passages, we're dealing with Israel corporately. In other words, Israel as a nation and all of the passages that he refers to in the Old Testament deal with Israel nationally. Now he's making the point that within this broader corporate entity called Israel, God selects 
individuals, you might say, or he might, you might say those that represent the nation, Isaac, and then he also chooses Jacob. But overall, he's dealing with the nation, and the nation is going to be set apart. So he's dealing in large measure with this doctrine of election in terms of Israel corporately. And corporately, Israel will also be set aside. That's part of the theme here. But in verse 23, when he talks about beforehand, it may hint at in this passage, and that's why I got a question mark there, I'm inclined to take it along with the Ephesians passage that this doctrine begins in eternity past. Some of you might disagree with that, but that's why I'll leave it as a question mark. Let you study on your own and be good Bereans and come to your own conclusions. So the little phrase there beforehand, eternity past, and back to the the bigger passage, I think what Paul is doing here is he's broadening the principles that we looked at when we talked about Moses and Pharaoh, and what he's saying Those principles that we talked about specifically in terms of Moses as a specific example and representative of the nation of Israel where mercy was displayed and the specific individual of Pharaoh that was hardened. I think this passage is broadening it to a broader perspective. In other words, it's applicable not just in those specific cases and probably not just the nation of Israel, and not just Egyptians, but in a broader sense, unbelievers in general and believers somewhat in general. So I think he's broadening the context. So that brings us to verse 24, where now I think he's going to move into more of an application. In other words, he's going to bring it to the first century, to the experience of the audience, to the Romans that reside, or the believers that resided in Rome, even us. Now he's including himself, even us. And as we continue here, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now he is kind of saying everything that I've been talking about through verse 23 concerning God's choosing, Now I'm going to bring it home and apply all of these principles to the situation of the first century. He's not talking about the church per se, but I think he's talking about specific individuals in terms of their relationship to God amongst Jews and also amongst Gentiles. So I think he's expressing, I think, in terms of the situation during the church age of the audience that he dealt with. So when he talks about Israel corporately being chosen, Israel set aside, and giving a time frame beforehand, perhaps eternity past, and now when he says us, especially when he refers to Jews and Gentiles, and including himself, he's including church age believers. And I think this whole concept of God setting aside some on a temporary basis, and choosing to incorporate others in the family of God, now he's bringing it closer to home. So he's going to specify even us whom he also called. Now keep in mind the context here. This is the same word that we spent at least an entire session developing when we were in Romans chapter 8, the idea of calling. 
In fact, you probably don't remember, but when we talked about chapter 1 and the calling of Paul himself, back then we developed the idea of this this calling, but very specifically in the context of Romans 8, particularly verses 28 through 30, that calling pertains to believers in terms of Jesus Christ, in terms of the body of Christ, in terms of salvation, and in terms of eternal destiny, in terms of that package. Remember that chain? Those whom he called, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also justified. Remember, you can't break the chain. They all go together. And whom he justified, even though it hasn't occurred in time, it's put in the past, in the aorist tense, the same tense as if we have already been glorified. So I think this takes us back to that and what Paul is bringing. He's bringing Romans 8 into this passage in terms of the the individual Jews. In other words, those amongst the Jews. He's not talking about corporately anymore. He's not talking about nationally. He's talking about those that are individual Jews. And not only them, but also from the Gentiles. So he's dealing with this calling, going back to 8, 28 through 30. And again, not from among Jews only. So it includes individual Jews. And he's going to deal with them 24 through 29, but also from amongst Gentiles. Now, he's not specifying what he makes very clear in Ephesians 3, where he defines the church as being made up of Jew and Gentile, but he's talking about the same concept here. It's not as specific as the Ephesians 3 passage. So just a reminder, remember he's been talking about all of Israel, he's been talking about ethnic Israel, and or we might describe it as national Israel, We've been using the word corporate. Within Israel, there has always been the true Israelites going all the way back to Isaac. That's where he starts in uh, chapter 9. But throughout history, there's always been a believing remnant within the broader Israel of which covenants and promises are made in terms of the nation. And within that, there are regenerate individuals that he describes as children of God. And also we saw in this Romans 9 passage, also describing them as children of promise. So that is not the church. That is within Israel. Now, some theologians have taken those passages to refer to the church, but I think they're not looking at the details in the text. And now beginning in verse 24, now he's going to bring in the idea of Gentiles. But in this context, they're still separate. They're not incorporated into Israel. They're not part of even believing Israel. They are believing Gentiles. But we know that Jew and Gentile will make up the church. That's not what is in view here. He's just trying to explain why God has set aside national Israel. He has not set aside that remnant. God always preserves a remnant that we'll see towards the end of the passage. So I think he's dealing with individual Jews, 24 through 29, and also individual Gentiles. That's why I've titled the 
last part of the paragraph, uh, sovereignty over Jews and Gentiles. So now he's applying what he said in chapter 9, verse 6 through 23, to he's coming to his conclusion concerning the explanation concerning Israel's rejection. And in fact, it's kind of a transition to what he's going to make more specific beginning in uh, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10. Make sense? So we can add to our little principles of God's election. We can say that uh, it includes Gentiles, a revolutionary idea, something unthought of, something almost uh, unthinkable in the thinking of a Jewish believer in the Old Testament, and certainly even believers in uh, the first century after even the death and crucifixion of Christ. So now Gentiles are to be included, and we see this worked out as you study the book of Acts, how the gospel begins amongst Jews in Jerusalem, extends to even the hated Samaritans and some Judeans, and then extends to Gentiles to the ends of the earth. That's kind of a summary of the book of Acts. And Paul is introducing some of that here in Romans 9. So God now extending grace and mercy to Gentiles. Go ahead. Uh, Just a a reminder, maybe it's a duh for the rest of everybody, but uh, for me it's not, um, that uh, this PDF is available on your website to download because it's very hard to keep up with the the numbers going back and forth between all these different lists. That's good. good. But uh, it's easy to download the whole PDF. Good, uh, good point. Yes. In fact, uh, on the website, I will put all of the audio, all of the PowerPoint slides, and the outline. So you can always go back and uh, pick up what you miss. Thanks, Jim. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. So, God's election, we've come to what number 12 there, includes Gentiles. And the concluding part of this longer paragraph of God's sovereignty vindicated, 19 through 29, the last last verses 25 through 29, it's not only displayed on a broad basis, but more specifically, the sovereignty is displayed in Gentile and Jew. And you could even say not only sovereignty, but specifically sovereignty in terms of choosing And now he's going to conclude, like he's concluded a lot of other sections in chapter 9, with a series of quotations from the Old Testament. So we have to develop the context. Now, he doesn't doesn't explain, he doesn't even expound these passages. He just kind of quotes them. He says, as he says also, he, God or the Holy Spirit, as he says also in Hosea, What he's going to do is he's going to use these passages to support and to confirm and to apply what he says in verse 24. In other words, this mercy has been extended to a new group, a new group of Gentiles. In fact, that's the last part of verse 24, and I think this is connected with the Gentiles. 25 and 26 are connected with the Gentiles, even though it's kind of an odd passage to use, he could have used 
maybe the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, or he might have used some passages in Isaiah that specifically spells out Gentiles. But for some reason, he chooses Hosea. So we have a, a little bit of a uh, interpretive problem here. The passage in Hosea, let me make clear right up front, pertains to the northern kingdom, Israel. The northern kingdom, Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom, and he's calling them to repent of their idolatry. In fact, we need to turn to that passage, and this may be as far as we can get today, to understand what Paul is doing here. Because of the context, I think he's applying Hosea not as a fulfillment, because then he would violate hermeneutical principles. This is not a fulfillment in terms of the Gentiles. I think what he's doing, and and by the way, let me just preface this. When you uh, when you come to the New Testament and you have quotes like this one, sometimes you'll have them prefaced in terms of such fulfills, such and such. And that word sometimes, not every time, but sometimes is referring to a fulfillment. In other words, what you have in the first century actually is fulfilling what was predicted in the Old Testament. Now, Matthew uses that phrase in that sense, but he also uses it in another sense as well, where he'll take a passage from the Old Testament and he will say that this is a fulfillment. For example, the birthplace of Messiah, he he takes the Micah passage and he says that this passage is fulfilled. In other words, it predicts that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And he gives the account of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, looking at it as a fulfillment. Now, not every quotation, and this is an example here in in Romans, Romans 9.25, where it's not used in that sense. For one, we don't have the little word, thus fulfills such and such, but it is just a reference to Hosea. And there's some other reasons why it's not a fulfillment, but that's the main one. You also find that sometimes a New Testament author will take a passage from the Old Testament, and he's not saying that it is necessarily fulfilled, and even Matthew does this in the early chapters there. In fact, Matthew takes a passage out of Hosea 11, and he uses the word fulfilled, but he's using it not in the sense of a... This is a prophecy because the Hosea 11 passage is not a prophecy. It's actually a statement of what took place, like a historical statement. But I think Paul is doing something similar here in uh, the Matthew passage. Matthew says that this is a, a, a pattern or this is the way God works when he talks about Israel being called out of Egypt In a similar way, in the New Testament, there's a coming out of Egypt of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not as a fulfillment, because it's not a prophecy, but more as a reflection of, this is kind of how God works. This is a pattern. This is an example. Not a fulfillment. You following me here? Because you could get all kind of off track if you see this as a fulfillment because it it's not dealing Hosea is not dealing with Gentiles. Now what Paul is doing is he's taking a pattern, I think, in the Old Testament 
and using it and applying that pattern. And by the way, some writers also will quote an Old Testament passage as a an application of a truth, not as a fulfillment. That's another way. In fact, this is kind of a complicated area that scholars debate and talk about in terms of how does the New Testament use the Old Testament. And there's at least four, maybe five, maybe six different ways that writers quote from the Old Testament. And in that quote, sometimes they will summarize, sometimes they will capture the essence of it, sometimes it will be almost a verbatim quotation, and they'll use it in different ways. So here's an example where he's taking Hosea and taking a pattern of how God dealt with Israel. So let's take a look at Hosea to understand the context. And if you'll just turn to chapter 1, and let's take a look at, this gives us the context of the whole book. And by the way, he's going to kind of break the quote into two parts. Verse 25 actually is a quotation of chapter, of a passage in chapter 2 that we'll look at. But we need to get the context first. And then verse 26, he's going to go back to chapter 1 because he's illustrating a different pattern, what God does in time and what he's done with the nation of Israel. Do we have people that want to read, or are we running out of time? Does somebody have... What are your Hosea passages? Chapter 1 first. 1 what? Well, let's start in verse 2. Now, this is this is uh, verse 25. I'm just going to give you the context here before we get into... In fact, uh, here's the passage. Hosea 2.23 is what Paul quotes. But let's develop that Hosea context. Since you got your mic open, I'm assuming you're ready to read. You want to read verses 2, two through 4. Okay. One, when the Lord, 1, 2 through 4. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Didlaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Okay, several things in there. The first principle is God condones prostitution, right? No. No. (laughs) No, not at all. So we got to discuss a little bit of what's going on here. I think what God is doing, which is very, very strange, actually, that God would command anybody, and here he's commanding a prophet, to go basically have a relationship with a prostitute. But what God is doing, and if you read the whole context, you can pick this up from bits and pieces later on, that what God is doing is he's, he's creating an object lesson. And as abhorrent, biblically, is this concept of prostitution and harlotry and all of that, God is taking that imagery and using it as an object lesson. And he's using one of his prophets to be the instrument of this illustration. So he has him go to a prostitute, have children through them, and now name them, and the names are very significant. 
Jezreel. The idea of Jezreel is that God is going to bring destruction or going to bring an end. And that's the idea here. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, verse 4. That's the meaning of Jezreel. Interestingly, that end ultimately will take place in that same valley, the valley of Jezreel. That's Armageddon. That's way future. But he's dealing with the immediate time frame, and he's going to talk about the destruction of the northern kingdom. And that's kind of pictured here in verse 4. I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Somebody else ready to read 5 and 6? Sure. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. There you go. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Okay. And what is the name Lo? That's that's a negative. That's no in uh, in Hebrew. Ruhamah, what does that mean? Give. Hmm? Does it mean forgive? Uh, no, it means she has no. not obtained mercy. I will no longer have, I will no longer have compassion, and you might use the word synonymously here. I will no longer have compassion. That's the meaning of the name on the house of Israel. So these children are named after what God is going to do. This is the object lesson. That I should ever forgive them. Wow, that's a strong statement. Somebody read seven through nine. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Will save them by the Lord their God. And will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now, when she had Queen Lo Ruhama, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Okay. And notice the, the third name, Lo, the Hebrew word no or not. Ami, my people. My, the me at the end is my people. In other words, he has basically abandoned the northern kingdom and said, you are no longer my people. You are idolatrous people. You followed after other gods. Just as I am illustrating with Hosea, you are a harlot. You are cast out. And you are no longer my people. Now, skip to chapter 2. That's kind of the context. God has rejected these people. But notice chapter 2, the one that he quotes, verse 23. Somebody read it. And I will sow for her myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now, this looks to restoration. So in the same context, Hosea is predicting the destruction that is going to come by the Assyrians, the destruction of the northern kingdom. And God is justified in abandoning them, rejecting them, and judging them. But because he's also a merciful God, He promises, even in Hosea, in the next chapter, that he's going to call those that are not his people, his people, once again. He's going to restore them. Now, 
some of the other prophets and even Paul himself are going to expand upon this idea. But Paul is already introducing this concept in uh, Romans chapter 9. So he's dealing with Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and historically he's indicting them for their idolatry in that time frame, in the time frame of the, the prophet. And he's predicting in verses 2 through 9 the Assyrian captivity. That's the context. And he says, I will call those who were not my people, my people. Now, in this context, he just referred to the Gentiles. And he's not saying that now the Gentiles are Israel. But what he's saying is just as God took a people that were not his people, that were abandoned, and will again call them to himself in a similar way, now he's extending to these not his people, his mercy and his grace. Does that make sense? And does that kind of harmonize a little bit of the interpretive problems that we might have there? So he's going to call them who are not his people, Gentiles, his people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. He's going to take an outcast people and bring them into the fold, if you will. In fact, make them beloved. Make them, uh, you might even say, regenerated. regenerated. Now, he's going to do this for Israel as well. We're going to see that. He's going to quote Isaiah and talk about Israel. But he's dealing with the Gentiles, I think, in verses 25 and 26. And now in verse 10, or a quote from verse 10, this is 926. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now, even Hosea chapter 1, if you go back to it, he's quoting from 110, where it is talking about that restoration again. So Israel will be restored in the future. Hosea says that. And I think Paul is using this as a pattern. In other words, just as God is going to do this for Israel, in this context, he's going to do something similar for the Gentiles. They are now going to be his people. And not only that, they shall be called sons of the living God. And you see that in the New Testament as a title of believers during the church age. Does that make sense? At least that's my attempt to try to harmonize the passage. Now, that's probably... Go ahead. Um, So just thinking through those slides and those diagrams and stuff that you have shown us, uh, so what you're saying, we are not the chosen, but we're not just stepchildren tolerated in the kingdom either. There's... Part of that, no, I'm not saying, part of that I'm not saying, we are the chosen. We are. But we're not Israel. Israel is the chosen that is set aside and will be restored. That's the that's the next passage that he's going to look at that we don't have time to get into. We'll have to look at it 27 and 28 next time, where he's going to take a different passage to apply Because notice verse 27, let me just read it. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. In other words, he just got done talking about the Gentiles from verse 24. 
and he's taking the Hosea passage, not as a fulfillment, but this is how God has worked. He rejected his own people and made him not his people and put them in captivity. And he also promised a future restoration. And God is taking a not his people, the Gentiles, and bringing them into the family of God, such as now they are the beloved. Does that make sense? Does that clarify your I didn't I kind of cut you off I kind of cut you off. I know we're running out of time, but there's you know, if you think of families and you think of step families and you know, half siblings and step families and you know, it can get pretty complicated and relationships within those families are not always smooth and and easy. Yep. But here we have God's family and he is expecting the relationships between all these various peoples to be an equal relationship that, that you're not going to have anyone saying, well, you aren't his child or you aren't her child or whatever. And, and I'm just trying to all of a sudden sort that out in my mind because I hadn't ever thought about all these various families coming together to coexist in love and joy. Right. Yeah, that's because we find ourselves in the 21st century and we have little interaction with Jewish people, let alone uh, Jewish believers even. Well, even just interaction with believers from various various uh, nationalities, um, ethnicities. Ethnicities and, and persuasions and all the rest. Sometimes those are pretty rocky too. Yep. In fact, the body of Christ historically is full of conflicts with one another. Yeah, and so I'm just trying to pull that all together because I was just realizing that we're not going to have any of that conflict when we shouldn't have it now, but maybe we it's to be expected that we will because all things have not yet been fulfilled. That's right, and not only that, but because we're still in sinful bodies and still... That's what I said. All things have not yet been fulfilled. We are not yet perfected. Exactly. Very good. Any other questions before we close here in prayer? Anyone care to close for us today? Since I'm on, I shall. Father God, you you challenge the way we think. We like to put things in nice little boxes. We're in, you're out, this, that, and the other. Uh, Lord God, we thank you that your plan transcends far beyond, exceeds far beyond any plan that we can possibly come up with. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will be transforming our hearts, transforming our thoughts, so that we will be coming more and more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. So we will be thinking, our thinking in every aspect of our lives, every aspect, will be becoming more in line with the way that you think. Father, that is a work of God. It's not something we achieve on our own. And so we plead for that in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we went a little over today, but uh, we covered pretty pretty good ground. Any last goodbyes before we sign off? 